what we did at the time is we hacked our way into building what would become Maze later on, which is we downloaded our Envision prototype and we started putting analytics on top of everything with this idea that if we are able to aggregate the data on our prototype and make sense of that data, we wouldn't have to run all of these interviews. You're listening to Seedcamp Firsts, the definitive guide to help early stage founders get their companies off the ground. Brought to you exclusively through the wisdom and lessons learned from some of the brightest minds across the Seedcamp nation. Hey everybody, and welcome to Seedcamp Firsts. I'm Devin Hunt, venture partner here at Seedcamp. And today we're going to be talking all about early stage product, trying to figure out how to build, why you should build it, and build that confidence so you can actually build it successfully. And I'm talking to probably one of the best people on the planet right now to talk about this stuff, Joe Wadowski from Maze. For those of you who don't know, Maze is a company that helps you test and explore and validate your product ideas. And whether it be from low stage mockups all the way through to scheduling and organizing large stage user tests, Maze takes care of that. So, you know, as I said, probably one of the best people in the world to talk about testing and learning about product. Joe, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk product, product discovery, yeah. product everything. It's been a while since I've been able to geek out on product with someone else. So I'm excited <laughs> for it. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited too, because I remember in the early days when we first started working with you guys, when we first invested in Maze, like it was just so exciting to see how you both were applying basically your own concepts to building what Maze did. And I think the results speak for themselves. On that point, maybe give us a quick overview of what Maze is and what you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. So we built Maze four years ago to democratize product research everywhere. So the goal for us was how do we make research happen everywhere within the organization? And what that means for us was three things. It was A, making research happen in companies of all sizes, including startups, right? Because mm. for a long time, research was something that was limited to the largest enterprise that had the means to actually invest in those things. Yeah. The second thing was about making it available in all industries. Again, it was about making sure that research was in the hands of the people that were building any form of digital experiences. And so we sell to Porsche and we sell to Walmart and we sell to companies that you wouldn't think of when it comes to research. And probably the final thing that's going to be the most relevant in this conversation today is that we are focused on making research available to everyone. And that for us meant that the key vision that we have was that research was going to transcend the researcher's role and that was going to be a tool that was going to be used by the whole organization. And we applied this principle a lot in how we built Maze as well, in making sure everyone was onboarded in the research journey. So how did you choose, like, obviously this seems very critical when building anything, but how did you choose to do this? Why was it the piece <laughs> when you and your co-founder sat down, you're like, you know what? Design research, product research, that's what we need to do. Because obviously, from my experience, it's usually because you've experienced that pain or like you had that problem. So what happened to you? What hurt you not, so badly? We are, we are not original, <laughs> man. So yeah, exactly. It's a scratch your own niche type of story. I'll, I'll tell the long story short of this, but basically, so I come from product. Originally, I was the head of design and research in different agencies in Paris. And I'm sure you've worked agencies. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will have worked agency. And so agencies... Selling research was most impossible. What we would face was selling research was basically telling your customers we're going to spend the next five weeks trying to find five people that are willing to come to our office, spend hours with them in a room with designers taking notes on what's happening in your product, compile all of this into a research repository so that the customer could actually consume the insights. And that would cost 50 to 100K. That would last eight weeks. And so while everyone agreed it was critical, right? There was no one that was denying it was critical. Everyone was like, let's build instead, right? Let's design instead. Because the cost of getting it right was prohibitive compared to the cost of getting it wrong. And so the fun part of the story is that while this is where we experienced the pain firsthand, 
Maze actually got started in the previous startup that we launched with my co-founder, Thomas. It has nothing to do with what we're doing today. We were building a messaging app for gamers. Ping, it was called at the time. And so, well, everyone might have heard of Discord today, and not everyone might have heard of Ping. And so we were building Discord right before Discord. We were backed by Fnatic in the UK, which is the biggest and largest programming team in the world. Yeah, I know Fnatic well. Yeah, shout out to Fnatic. And so because of that backing, we had thousands of people in a waiting list eager to try out our product. And the reality was we didn't have a product yet. What we had at the time was this very in-depth envisioned prototype of what we wanted to create. And so we thought, how do we get insights in our value proposition, in which flows are working, in which design is performing better, before actually having to build the thing and not having to actually interview 12,000 people, right? Mm. And so what we did at the time is we hacked our way into building what would become Maze later on, which is we downloaded our Envision prototype and we started putting analytics on top of everything with this idea that if we are able to aggregate the data on our prototype and make sense of that data, we wouldn't have to run all of these interviews. We could collect quantitative data that we would be able to collect post-development at a pre-development stage. We pushed this Maze V0 to 2,000 people and one hour later, we got a thousand response. And so I come from a world where five responses in five weeks was basically opening champagne. And all of a sudden, right. we had this treasure trove of data available to us, right? And so it was completely mind-blowing seeing, A, the data was available, but B, also that all of a sudden, the cost of iteration didn't include the cost of development. That all of a sudden, we had the means to iterate at a stage where we didn't have to spend money on building something. And so that's the long story short on. The previous startup obviously yeah. didn't work. Discord raised $180 million in three months, which made competing a bit difficult. But it felt obvious at the time that we found something, at least that we found extremely valuable and that we started. Let me talk about that obvious point, because I think that's a really interesting feeling, especially like in an entrepreneurship context, right? When you have that sort of innate confidence, you're like, oh, this is what we need to do. And there's probably some stuff to unpack there. So like what made it obvious to you? Because that signals a couple, I think to everyone else it's different. For some people, it's that first sale or seeing the transaction happen. For other people, it's seeing usage go up. But how do you quantify that obviousness? Uh, so I have a good story about that. So I have a very obsessional nature. I think all entrepreneurs have to. It's built into the package. Hopefully. But hopefully, exactly. <laughs> but for us, what really happened was that I started obsessing over this idea and I kept on thinking we can build something that we can test very early on, that a proof of concept that we can test to get sanity check on our obsession about this specific venture that we wanted to build. And so what we did at the time was we built a first version in a couple of months. It was really basic, right? It was bare bone. We were manually creating the heat maps, like all of the things that it had no bells and whistles. It was all very bare bone. Hmm. And I told Thomas, my co-founder, I take my old job back as lead UX and I'll force customers to try out the solution. And we'll see if they get value from the little hacky thing that we built. And if they do, if we see the value and we see that they're actually happy with what we've been building, then it's a good sign that we need to continue pushing for this. Mm. And so the first customer that we got was a big French bank with a green logo that I'm not legally allowed to name. And so uh, this big bank, they didn't want a research. They were well known in this agency for never wanting to invest in research because again, long, expensive, didn't care for the five results, all of the reasons that any customer can bring to you. And so I told them, we have this new platform and we can go from the prototype that we've already created from you to actually having insights in what's working, what's not working in an hour. Give me access to your prototype. Give me access to 50 of your customers. And one hour later, we'll get results for you. And he was like, okay, I'm okay to try this. We send out the test. An hour later, we get 35 response. He looks at the results. He goes to my boss at the time and said, if this was available last year, 
we could literally have saved millions of dollars. <laughs> wow. So this to me was purely qualitative, right? At the time, like we didn't have a ton of data set and I kept on iterating the product with other customers in the agency for a few months. But what was really mind blowing was that all of a sudden we tied the value that we thought there was to the actual value that customers were perceiving. And that was to me, one of the key unblocker, right? All of a sudden, yes, people understand both the value of the product and then the value it unlocks for your organization overall. So that was the mind blowing piece. And the interesting thing to highlight is that you basically ran an experiment on the fly, right? Now you did have a lot of the product built, but the proposition, you weren't selling it in. You're like, oh, just let me try something with this. Exactly. So the signal there for you was the value, like you saw the reaction from the client being like, oh, wow, this is so much better than what I expected. And you're like, ah, that makes it obvious. Exactly. Right. And especially when you're successful in selling a process that you've been unsuccessful selling for this type of customers for years, and especially when they automatically attach it to a return on investment when they can attach a budget value to it. To me, it was the, the great sign that, yes, the stars are kind of aligning. There is a product that we built that is bringing value that we can then attach to a budget within the organization. And all of this means that if we can replicate this a hundred thousand times, we mm -hmm. have an actual business, right? Like this is the type of signal that you're looking for, I guess. Fantastic. And so as you started to build this, obviously there was lots of micro decisions to make around what to prioritize and what to do next. And I know, at least when we were working together closely, Envision is where you started, right? Yep. And then obviously Figma was the big player coming in. Yep. Could you maybe, maybe it's not an interesting story at all, but if it is, how did you get the confidence it was time to add that second major integration onto the platform? And was there any internal argument about that? Like, because I'm sure from my experience, there's always one person who's like, obvious we do this. And that person's like, this is a waste of time. And then how did you get to some <laughs> yeah. sort of, I don't know, framework-based decision that it's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. a good question, especially in the early days. In the early days, it feels like you want to build everything, but you really have the resources to build one thing. So you have yes. to basically <laughs> nail down all of this discussion. And I think that it all boils down to a very simple question, which is almost what is the real thing that's going to 10x the business in the next year to come, right? And so mm. it might sound silly in the end, but the reality for us was always, what is the marginal incremental change that we can make? And what is the thing that's really going to unlock for us the next stage of the mission and the vision that we're trying to build? And so, for example, we started with Envision because, funny enough, when we started Maze in 2018, Envision, I mean, we didn't have Figma on our slide deck, just as yeah. a reminder for the world that Figma was not a thing. And so there's multiple reasons we did Envision and Figma and all of the players that were on the market. One of the main reasons at the time for us was almost a, a business defensibility case as well. For us, it was we saw in organization that there was no standard in what people were using in terms of design and prototyping. At the time, you could see a mix of Envision and Marvel and Sketch and Figma that started to come up. And so we kept on thinking, if we want to address the market, we have multiple options. We could go deep on more use cases, but it's very uncertain. Or we could expand the use cases we have to other tools, which is a much more certain venture and allow us to unlock instant market shares. The second thing that was interesting for us as well was that Whenever we were building the integration, it also tied to our acquisition channels, right? Because all of a sudden we could co-market with Figma, we could co-market with Sketch, we could co-market with these players. So basically we assessed in a very simple framework at the time. I think that you don't necessarily need to overthink the decision, but for us, it was really what is going to help us get to the next stage of growth for the business. And that's going to support our customers the best. And so this matrix of this is very useful for our customers versus this is also very unrisky because we know that we can just replicate this with others was what led us to go from Envision to Figma, for example. And there's an interesting point there because you used excellently for customers, like what's going to bring this to the next level for our customers. And so 
maybe if you rewind a bit, obviously, because you had this agency model beforehand, you were talking to people, but you know, one of those challenges a lot of young companies face is they have sort of a customer in mind or maybe one or two references, but like, that's a very small data set when trying to validate some big decisions. So how do you do that? Or how did you do that? And maybe are there any specific formulations you've baked into Maze since then to build that confidence or make it more objective than, than subjective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a, a million things. I want to say that at this stage, so let's break down the two stages because I would say that yeah. there is the stage. Yeah, where let's go early first and then we can exactly, go how you then exactly. maybe codify that into the culture. Exactly, because I'm not sure that what I'll say right now, it will be relevant to a 10 people team, for example. So at the 10 people team, what I felt was the most useful at the time is an analogy that I like to use, which is you shoot the arrow and then you draw the target around it, which means that at the time you're going to launch a bunch of experiments. You're going to test a lot of things. And your vision is really going to be redefined by what you learn to be successful, right? So for us, we know all the talk that I've done five minutes ago when we started this recording about we are selling research to non-researchers. All of these things seem obvious today, right? But originally, that was not the goal at all, right? Originally, when we started Maze, we started by saying we need a better research tool for researchers, right? That was the vision. We just wanted to build something that was more efficient at the pre-development stage. And all of a sudden, we started seeing designers using the platform. And we started seeing product managers. And we started seeing product markets. And we were like, there's, there's something there. So a lot of it for us was about adapting our strategy to what we were learning on the go. I think very early on, that's more critical than anything else. It's just you're going to launch things. You're going to see pockets of things that are successful. So for us, that was things like the new personas that we were starting onboarding on the platform. We launched a small report, which was just another way to repackage the data that we were doing that all of a sudden was shared everywhere. So all of these things, you need to take those as signals of almost micro product market fit for some of the features that you have and try to compile all of this into your vision, right? Like all of this starts to merge into your vision. So right. it's a very iterative process at this stage of the company. And now, if you want, I can talk about what we do today, which is very different from this. Uh, yeah, definitely. But I wanted to hi highlight one thing there, which is, again, you said like th there was a lot of responding to the emergent behavior on the live yeah. product, on the thing that has been shipped, be it experiment or like properly coded app. Yeah. Th there's an aspect there where you did have things live very quickly, right? Yeah. So you, you had real data in the environment to work with. It wasn't all speculative design. It wasn't all just prototyping, right? Exactly. Exactly. We had things. So we are obviously at the time extremely connected to customers, right? At this stage, you have 10 customers, you have a hundred users, you're talking to every one of them probably every week. So you understand what's working, what's not working for them. But then you basically use this hypothesis that they give you, right? This is what we want to see, this is what we want to build. And you build them very fast for them to experience mm. the value of those things. So I think and that- just, just a small cool. tangent, like do you have any stories around like where either distraction became an interesting product development for the company or it became a huge waste of time. Because one, oh, one of those yeah. things I think a lot of young entrepreneurs struggle with is one customer really wants this, do oh we build God. it? I have 10,000 stories. So <laughs> I'll preface all of this. Our SVP of customer experience was the SVP of customer experience at Envision. And he's just a very veteran customer experience leader. He's very wary about sharing quotes from customers for this exact reason that mm. you just mentioned. That you need both the qualitative and the quantitative to be able to assess and make a decision, right? But that's why it's dangerous as well to have everyone join, for example, customer call, because you can create advocate and champions for problems that are minimal problems, but that have a strong voice attached to those problems. That being said, we have examples. So the report is a good example of an endeavor that was just a side thing. So for alongside, we had this hunch that the way that we were displaying the data was not really working, that it was complex. And because we were targeting all of a sudden designers and people that had no research background, we thought 
maybe we need to repackage this data in a kind of automated report like we did at the agency I worked for, right? Maybe we need to package this in a beautiful way that they can feel proud to share with the rest of the org. And so it was a literally two days project. Like we spent two days on this thing, just you know, it's repackaging, right? The moment we released this, we started seeing a behavior that we've never seen before, which was that all of a sudden we started seeing C-level watch the reports. We started seeing it spread across Slack. Basically, we created an engine of virality that we didn't really expect, right? For us, it was just a mean of, well, we're going to just repackage. And for them, it was a mean of sharing, spreading the insight that they've collected. And that educated a lot of our vision moving forward, right? That all of a sudden research needed to be collaborative, for example. That was not part of the initial vision. And the spark that initiated this little project was like you just saw other people on the data. Right. Exactly. The problem space that we identified was people don't necessarily understand the data that we've collected because they are non-researchers and we present research data. So how do we recompile this data in a digestible way, basically? So, yeah. Which makes sense, like 100% in hindsight. But I guess the thing I'm really interested in is like, what was the observation moment? Like, what was the thing where someone was like, oh, crap, we're missing this? Like, yeah. how did you capture that? And because that's the little details that are always really interesting. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. What we looked at was that we are really good at attracting people. We had word of mouth that was through the roof. All, all of this was working. People were activating. They were sending their first test, but then they were not coming back, right? And it's always the big problem when you're a startup. Right. right? It's the, are you not coming back because you didn't find value? Are you not coming back because you don't need to test more? Like all of these problems. And so we just ran multiple conversations with customers, right? What is preventing you from coming back? And a lot of them showed frustration with the data. And we identified that the subset of those was the non-researchers specifically, right? That they struggled with this specific part. When you figured out they were frustrated with the data, was that because of you reached out to them? You yeah. like, how did you get that response? So, and you'll see, this is basically a process that we translated to everything we do at Maze today, but it started with hypotheses that we generated qualitatively. So conversation anecdotally, we saw that it popped out more for a specific subset of our customer base. And then what we did was just, we surveyed our entire user base to validate that the hypothesis we generated qualitatively, we surveyed quantitatively our whole user base to understand if that was a real problem. And I think it came back with like 50% of our users didn't understand the data that was displayed. So we're like, okay, so we need to solve that. We need to do better. Yeah. Uh, so let's try to repackage that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those sort of common things people forget. They launch the feature, but you never do the follow-up. Yeah. Like you, you see sort of the, the one-off dashboards where it's like, oh, the usage isn't high, but you don't do the follow-up, which is like speak to the people or survey, obviously the famous superhuman example, which exactly. I think is not very adaptable to a lot of applications, but the concept's right. You're proactively looking for relatively like Custev-esque feedback, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I like it a lot. So I think that it's a good way to assess product market fit because there's so many talks about product market fit. I think that mm -hmm. product market fit is extremely hard to track, right? I think that, uh, I don't know if you know this article about the different stage of product market fit within the organization, which is like, it's non-binary. It's not you have product market fit or you don't have product market fit. And it's also not a spectrum because it's not like I'm 0 0.7 on my one scale of product yeah. market fit, right? <laughs> so it's kind of in between. And he uses an example that I like a lot and that we use at Maze, which is, he says there's the product market desert, which is you're going to die here. Like if you stay here, your startup is going to die. You're going to waste resources, everything, because you don't have product market fit. And that generally looked like the previous startup that we launched, right? Which was, it's very hard to get users. It's very hard to retain those users. It's very hard for people to understand really the value that you're providing. All of these are signs that you're in the desert. And then he says, there's two other states. There's the product market fit mountain, which is you're on the hill, you're climbing, you have some sense of a push for you, but you're not there yet. And then you have the mountain top, which is really like traction is coming your way. You don't have to pull for the people. And what I like is that it's a mix of these 
binary and spectrum vision, right? Because there's a spectrum, but you're only on the spectrum if you're on the mountain, right? Because if you're in the desert, you're really not on the spectrum at all. You yeah. can do whatever you want. And we've seen so many companies, and I do some advisory for founders as well these days, and you see so many companies, especially with product people, where they throw features at problem, and it, you're in the desert. You're going to die if you stay here. Like This is the moment to even to change entirely your business. And you can think of this even at the feature level, right? Where you can see a feature be on the desert, or you can see a feature be in the mountain and actually needing some more push. And I can talk a bit more about how we do that at Maze today and how that Yeah, totally. I, the way I've always thought about it is like, you know when you do have product market fit, and you don't know when you don't have it, right? Like it's very clear because product market fit means people are using it and you're growing and then it's even the least analytical company will notice that because their bank account yeah. will be increasing. But those who might layer their matrix looking and hunting for something, you don't have it. Like if you, you have, have to it. do that much work, you, you don't have it. Exactly. And but you know, the next question I was going to ask, it probably is a perfect segue to that point, which was, you know, choosing what to build next, thinking about, or even, you know, if you want to talk about it, what do you cut? Yes. Yeah. Like I'd love to hear about how you guys like decide product market fit or feature customer fit or however you sort of now manage it in a larger organization. And maybe yeah. I'd like to draw out some ideas of some basic concepts and how you enable your team to make those decisions independently. All right. So it's going to be a pretty long monologue. I'll try to make it <laughs> short and sweet for everyone, but I have to start pretty far. Because Don't worry, I we can it's... always edit it down. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Keep the keywords up with these. Yeah, we want sentence. this. This is the quality content we're in, like trim into a beautiful little steak. <laughs> cool. Perfect. No. So I, I like when I talk about product, I like to start with the vision of the company first, because I think yes. it's critical. I think product strategy is not listening to your users. Product strategy is not being a genius. Product strategy just turning your company's vision into something that's coherent to get you to a vision. That's to me product strategy. And so what this really means is for us, for example, I'll give the main example for everything so that it's simple to digest as well. The company vision that we have is that we say we want to live in a world where experiences are shaped by the people who engage with them. So what that really means is that we believe that the future is entirely user-centric and that the companies yeah. that will win will be the user-centric company. Cool. Yeah. Very simple, very sweet. Then the mission that we have is how do we get there, right? And so we get there by saying we empower anyone to test and learn rapidly. That's our mission. We want to empower anyone to test and learn rapidly. Also very simple. What that really means for us is that we give the tools for anyone within the product organization to be able to run tests and to consume the results of the test to learn and then iterate, right? That's the mission. So everything we do at Maze is just getting closer to this mission, right? So every year at the beginning of the year, we'll look at the state of where we are. And I like to think of the mission as kind of stairs, right? It's like you're getting closer, like you're climbing those stairs. And generally, mm -hmm. what's funny is that these fundraising cycles are very close to the stairs, right? What do I need to prove to the next stairs to be able to raise my next round? And I like yeah. to think of this way because it's very simple, right? It's very sweet. So for example, last year for us was let's prove the anyone piece of this sentence, right? Let's prove that we can actually sell to anyone within the product organization. And so what's really beautiful about this is that, again, if we look at vision, mission, then we define this specific goal, right? The business goal. Then it's very easy. Marketing can run with it and try to grow your top of funnel with product managers and product marketers and these new personas. Sales will run with it by creating collateral for these new personas to sell into and create customer stories for those personas. And then product will start building against this problem space. How do we sell to more of these personas? And so there are millions of ways to solve for these things. Yeah. And so the researchers and the product managers will start by compiling the existing data that we have. So it will be, 
historical data from the product of people that have tried to hack the product to solve for this problem and generally also reaching out to these users. It will be customer voice from sales conversation or customer voice from support conversation. And so we'll compile this massive data set into somewhat of a coherent problem space, right? Yes, there has been cases where product managers are afraid to solve this. This is what competitors look like. This is what's been solved for and not solved for really well. So all of these will try to identify something that's coherent. And then each pod will try to define a problem space that they want to validate. They will say, we believe that this problem space, given the data that we have, the limited amount of data that we have, is a problem that we want to test for. And so we at Maze, we've built Reach, as a side note, a product that allows you to connect to your user base. We connect to your Amplitude, whatever, and you can send campaigns directly to your users. We use this internally to connect to our users as well. So we'll start both qualitatively interviewing our users to get a better sense of this problem space, generating hypotheses of problems to solve, and then we'll, again, quantitatively survey our user base to get a sense of, is this actually a problem for you? And mm -hmm. again, as a side note, on Maze, you'll have these templates that you can use, even if you don't know how to do research, that will help you actually assess the problem space. Where Give us a quick sample of like what that sort of outreach looks like in terms of questions or how you put that. Because it is one of those questions that's very biasable, right? Absolutely. Do you want this? Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. Knows. Exactly. But at this stage, you don't even ask if they want anything. It's more like the criticality of the problem, right? It's uh, right. how critical is this on your day to day? Right. Uh, how, how often do you face this problem? So it's assessing if it's a real problem for a real user. For yeah, real you're looking users at that past behavior. Like, exactly. Tell us about, do you care about this? Not really. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And it's like, are product managers using Google Form today to do these specific things? Then we've identified that actually, if we were to do this thing better, because we can be specific about the problems, the problem that we're solving, then actually we found a problem that's to be solved as well. So it's, again, it's like the product market fit. I'd say that validating is always data informed, right? You have some data and then you have to take the leap of faith, right? You have to be, well, we've yes. validated as much as we could and now let's move forward, right? There's always this ratio between analysis paralysis and just moving yes. forward. So for us, what we'll do, especially in the templates that we share, we have this threshold of like, if we reach X percent of people that say this is critical, then it's worth actually exploring, right? If it's not, then- How we'll do you just... pick that X percent? Sorry to interrupt, but that's one of those questions you often get is like, is it 1%, is it 20%? <laughs> like what, because I, I know for me, I have an internal number that I'm very happy with, and it's not even yeah. a fixed number. It's sort of like I make a guess per, but how do yeah. you choose? Like, how does Joe choose that number? That's very good. So I don't choose the number. It's the product managers. And what they'll do is they'll try to assess how much of our current user base should be targeted by this specific problem. So they will say, for example, okay, so we have, this is probably a problem for the product managers, and this is probably a problem for the product managers in large organization. This is X percent of our current user base. So if we start targeting everyone, let's see which percentage we get against this person. And then we'll adapt, obviously, depending on what we learn on the go yeah. as we render the problem. But that helps basically set up a And if we were a rewind four years to like early days of Maze, how did you pick that number? We didn't pick a number at the time. At the time, it was yeah, more about... You were about, just sort of going by feel. <laughs> it was... I mean, we had some data, but again, we didn't have the maturity to be able to run these type of things because you also need a sample to be able to run some of these things. Well, that was sort of my point because like the process you're describing sounds extremely effective, but it does require a large sample set to sort of make it work, which is one of those exactly. tricks when you're in early stage and you're being a little more scrappy and you don't have the time to assemble. I mean, even with Maze, like it does take time to assemble a largest cohort. It's one of those trickier things to build confidence yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, I would say that earlier on the two advice, you're very much more dependent on qualitative data. So talk to your users a lot, make yeah. it a process so that you have days dedicated to talking to your users. And as a fun fact, I was doing support for the company 
until two years ago, right? I was the support channel. So people would talk directly to the CEO for any support to get. And that helped educate everything, right? I saw firsthand the pains of the users. I would recommend that for everyone. And then build the community as early as you can, right? That was a running gag at Maze for a long time that yeah. I would say I'll add you to the community, which was just a shitty Google sheet, but it was like people were very like, Oh, I'm added to the community, but it was just a Google sheet of people I could reach out to. So it was like, well, add you to the Google sheet. Yeah, man. I mean, it's one of my big hacks in my current code. It's like everyone runs support and everyone's in the community. We circle for our community yeah, stuff. E and exactly. It's great. It just, it changes everyone's perception of who's using the products. Exactly. And it connects you. Like you have now, even a small subset is a small database of people that are willing to help you, which is funny because it's our vision that made, right? At the yeah. end of the day, it's that yeah. we're trying to build the operating system for you to be able to connect with your users. So yeah, it's a key part of what we believe in. Excellent. So sorry, I interrupted your flow on the validation stuff. We've established the mission, the vision, getting into yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So how so, do we get to that that like big idea that gets and get to the validation stage? All right, let's do it. So now we've identified the problem space. We've said, okay, so this problem is validated. This problem is something that we think is worth investing in. We kill the let's say release candidate of problem that we've identified as worth. Yeah. And it's it's a big moment of celebration as well when you kill off the problem space that you thought were valid but are not. And I think that that's something that we need to culturally celebrate as well that I don't see often enough is that you can have a hunch and you can believe all the things in the world, but the moment that you realize that what you believed in was actually wrong is the moment where you've literally saved probably six months of your life trying to yeah. build something that was not worth it. Like it's a big, big moment. So we celebrate that, then we move on to the solution space. And again, the product managers this time they will try to create a different solution for the problem that they've identified. So I'll give you another example. Last year at Maze, uh, again, we said we want to solve for the anyone piece of the mission. So we realized, okay, so on the product side, there's multiple ways to make the anyone piece. Uh, we created templates, for example, as a way to solve for that. But at the time we thought, let's build collaboration, right? Our collaboration seems like a good idea because people are using collaboration in other platforms. It looks like it's a good way to onboard new personas into the platform because designers can invite other people. All of these things seem like very relevant. Hmm. And so collaboration seems easy when said out loud, but collaboration is a billion different things, right? It can be, do you want to collaborate when creating a test? Do you want to collaborate when reviewing the response and be able to tag the response? Do you want to collaborate on the report and comment on the report? All of these things were possible, right? And, yeah. and determining which one were the one that we were going to invest in was difficult. And so what we did was we just evaluated the solution space. So the same thing, we talked to our users and we tried to get qualitative data on like, why are you trying to collaborate in the product today as a designer, as a product manager, as a product marketer? So we created all of these cohorts of data. And then we said, okay, so from there, um, which type of collaboration are you after? And we surveyed our entire user base about this collaboration habit. And we cut it down between the ones that were willing to pay for this type of feature, the ones that were not, and to try to understand how people were really expecting to use the feature and which one was going to turn into revenue as well for us. And so all the hunch that we had were big believer in um, live collaboration within building the product got, I think, a 5%, uh, the potential adoption rate for our user base. So we're like, this is... And to the contrary, the commenting on a survey while you're building it got 80% because that's actually how people wanted to behave in the product. Yeah. And that's what we built. And that's been extremely successful, especially for enterprise segment, which is the segment that brings the more revenue for the company. So being able to first test the problem, then test the solution space. Then we come to the design space where the designers will assess the usability risk of the product. That was our core offering initially at Maze, right? Which was you test your prototypes. So you create low fidelity and high fidelity version of your prototypes send them to your users, 
get a sense of how they're, they're performing on your prototype to know if you need to review the usability of your prototype, the copy of your prototype, all of these things. And then, yeah, we go into production, right? Once yeah. all of this is validated, we push it live and we see how people behave with the product. And there's such an interesting point there, which is like, if you think about the pipeline of product development, the part that we always think of when we do have a product development, the design and development mm -hmm. phase is like the last two steps in a long exactly. pipeline of validation, right? And there's so many moments where you remove the crap that you don't need to think about, exactly. that you don't need to focus on, you don't need to further develop. And, and much, exactly. much to like, you know, to hearken all the way back to the story of the mysterious French bank, like they could have saved so much money if they just like tried it out first. You know, exactly. pitched it, talked to the customers, got their behaviors, started to build up a case for it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that was the problem for research for a very long time is that it's very mentally loaded. Like a lot of people assume research is long and you need a lab and you need high tracking software. Yeah. And what I tell you yeah. very early stage founders is like, just go to a cafe and talk to someone. And that's your research, right? If that's the maximum amount of research you can run, do that. That's more than enough to get started. And so while I described today, sophisticated and mature research processes. The rate is that at the time we were still running research just in a much more casual manner, right? We were talking to our users constantly. We were trying to survey our user base, even if it was minimum amount of data that we could get. Mm. And that helped us navigate, right? And we stayed very nimble in our way that we practice research. Perfect. Yeah, it's super clear. And like the fact that it is nice again, like you see like how Maze basically embodies this. You've seen the products as they sort of stack on top to build the, the yeah. full solution. It's like, yep. It's sort of just shipping what works for them, which is very convenient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to talk about something else as well that I think is relevant, which is mm -hmm. it, it doesn't end there, right? Like, yeah. all right, so when just before we push to production, what we like to do, and it's a practice that I'd like to see more companies on board, which is the pre-mortem. So what we do is we sit down and we say, okay, so we have this three by three square and we say this T which metrics are we trying to impact with this new feature? It can be acquisition activation. It can be a specific metric. So in, let's say, for example, a new pricing that you're releasing to the world. And we say, okay, so the status quo today is we have an ASP of X and we have a conversion rate of Y. And so we live in this center square in the middle. With this new feature, with new pricing, this new whatever, the goal is to be on the bottom right of the quadrant, right? So a higher conversion rate, a higher ASP. But we can be anywhere around this quadrant. And all of this quadrant will have reaction attached to those, right? The same way that we're testing all the way through production, then you need to have milestones at checkpoint to know if you need to rework a feature, if you need to kill it, if it's actually not performing the way that you intended, and where you are in this product market fit map that we described earlier, right? If you're in the top left, you're in the desert. The feature has not reached any of your goals, and so the goal is to kill it, right? You've actually introduced yeah. something that's damaging to the product. And so we do that for every new release that we do. And it forces you to have a conversation about you're not going to end up in the ideal state, even if you test it all the way through, right? You, yeah. There are ways where you'll learn that this is actually not being adopted. And having this practice internally, you can do this much, much earlier. You don't need to be to have a full mature blown up research methodology to do that. It's very simple. It allows you to assess every time if the feature that you release to the world is actually performing or not performing and have actions attached to those things. Excellent. Yeah, that's really key. And again, like with that sort of earlier discussion, you're forcing yourself to look back in the evidence and be like, when do we predict well, if not, if so, exactly. or are we just like pretending it's not an issue and we're just going to exactly. pretend it worked anyway? Exactly. Yeah, I like that a lot. How do you keep track of all that stuff? Yeah, so we do that in Notion. So we are fully remote company since day one. I remember the days I joined Seedcamp where remote was not a thing yet. It wasn't uh, really a thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rare. 
And so we have this massive repository of like cycles and projects that we are running and the PMs own the cycles that are internal to their team, basically. So they are the ones that are keeping track and creating these beautiful documents that we can come back to. So it's like living, breathing thing inside of yeah. this, where you can look back at the whole history of like, we started here, we built this, we iterated there. It's really interesting to see. That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the trickiest parts is you do have to start documenting it or else you do forget. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's a piece of history. It's also interesting to look back at why you made the decisions that you made, right? Why did we end up in the state of things that we are today? A very emotional moment for me recently was someone tagged a short iteration that I did in 2018 when we started the product where I talked about like the state of state-based interaction in the product. And it was like, this is incredible, right? Like uh, yeah. this living piece of history is actually being brought back because it's interesting now to understand where we are today, right? This was the principle in which we built this thing. So it was pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge supporter and I practice it as like, you know, keeping the company handbook a live malleable device, which attaches yes. to the day-to-day -day work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, like you, you've been a remote company since day one. And I think a lot of businesses are now starting to come to terms that might have to be, a, if not the default culture, an aspect of a lot of culture as they grow. So how do you think about structuring this kind of very collaborative work in a remote organization? Like what, maybe the easier way to ask this question is what are some things or mistakes you've made that you've now sort of found interesting ways around like issues or quandaries when it came to like doing this product design, collaborative work? in a remote context. Yeah. I mean, we've tested a billion different forms. I can talk both about the different ways of building that we've tried. We went through ShapeUp for a very long time. We've tried mm. multiple processes and even the setup of the organization where we went from a large team to multiple pods to squads squad that sit under pods, etc. But I think the most relevant part, so we used to use ShapeUp as a way to go fast. I think that, uh, I don't know if you Probably not everyone that will listen to this know what ShapeUp is. ShapeUp is a process in which you basically make bets. So you say, you define the problem space and you say, this is a bet that we want to make and we're going to invest up to six weeks in this specific bet. And so that worked well for us when we were small. Uh, and as we started growing as well, we, we started seeing more and more MVPs being released in compared to lovable product, right? So the product, start, yeah, we yeah. started festering this culture of like, get it out, right? Rather than celebrate the usage of the product. That was the big failure that we had at some point in the company. I actually wrote an internal memo about this specific problem a year and a half ago, where we identified that it's very easy to create a culture where you celebrate releases rather than celebrate usage of the platform, right? Where people, everyone has their check marks, right? We did everything like the process intended and now this is out of the door and we can move forward. Yeah, and I think the, it's shipped. Exactly, it's shipped, it's done, right? We, it's good and zero adoption, zero revenue from it, zero love, zero anything. And so it's getting yourself in check between the balance that you have to find between releasing things often and fast, which is what ShapeUp allowed us to do at the time and actually releasing value that's what we introduced with the pre-mortem, right? It's a hard look at yourself, right? It's in six weeks from now, you will review what's happening with this thing that we built and we'll yeah. see if we're happy or not. And being great as a product leader is not just being great at identifying the right things to build. It's also being great at identifying the right things to kill, right? And 100%. that goes through the whole product development process, but also post-development, right? Cool, you've invested in that and it's not working kill it, right? You're adding layers and layers and layers of depth inside your product. And that has a cost as well that's attached to it. So yeah, I would say that's probably one of the key learnings is that's why I mentioned this earlier. It's like the hard look at yourself that we didn't do yeah. as much. Yeah. It's something that I think everyone, every product developer goes through this sort of metamorphosis of like 
being terrified of deleting things to like yeah. almost always looking for like i know for me my default True. mode is like can we kill it can yeah. we get rid of it do we do we need it and and there's nothing more liberating than like removing something and sometimes even seeing usage go up because yeah. you've like demystified yeah. decomplicated the product you're working on yeah 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 exactly that's yeah. the key part of growing of maturing as a product leader i would say yeah Excellent, man. We've covered like a ton. And I think we've actually hit a lot of the high marks around thinking about both an early stage and as you grow, like going from just a beautiful idea to something that's actually yeah. being used, something that actually yeah. has maybe even some mystical, you know, product market fit. So yeah, yeah. like, I'm happy to wrap here, but I'm curious, like if you were going to start it all again, well, let's say, you know, Maze was acquired by Tesla for some reason. And Finally. he didn't give you option stock. He just gave you cash, thankfully. <laughs> what would you, how would you start afresh given all this knowledge? Because like, you know, I know from experience, like growing a business a stage, you, mm-hmm. you develop a lot of systems and ideas and how you do this. So day yeah. one, like how do you go forth and start to rework a new idea? Yeah. So I think the only thing that I would really do differently we got lucky, I want to say. So I think a lot of times like founders will say, I got, we got lucky on our end. Oftentimes, you build something because you think it's needed, right? We built something for the world. We built a toy at the time, right? We built an analytics for Envision prototype. That was what we were originally because we felt it was cool to be able to test your prototype and we we saw the value on our end. And then we started building up the vision from there. What I recommend to founders these days is to use the framework that I use internally that I described a bit earlier, right? Which is to start from the vision to build everything else. And so on my end, this is probably what I would redo, right? Because for for us at the time, we stumbled upon success, but we didn't really process success through a vision lens, right? We we build the vision as a successor, right? So that would be the big, big shift that I would do is that once you have this framework and this mindset of the goal is to reach this mission, and we can do this by validating things as we grow, right? So each piece is going to be validated. That changes everything, right? Because all of a sudden you, you sell a coherent story to people that you hire, you sell a coherent story to your investors, you sell a coherent story to people internal to your company. Like it's all very, very limpid when you're sharing. So yeah, I would do that probably differently with the knowledge that I have. Perfect. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to give us a little deep dive. Um, thank you. Obviously, if people want to check out Maze, they can go to maze.co, M-A-Z-E.co. But is there anything else you want to shout out coming up? Anything interesting? Yeah, we're launching the DiscoConf, uh, which is our discovery conference. It has, like, I can't even believe the lineup that we managed to have for the event. So I suggest for everyone to come and join us. It's free. If you want to step up your discovery practice, it's an amazing event to participate in and we'll showcase new features that we're building as well. So if you're already a Maze user, you'll have some new stuff coming up. Fantastic, man. Well, thank you so much for taking space on the time. And we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Devin.